There's a Turkish-American journalist and a, a liberal political commentator. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I think I am. Cenk Uygur. And he said this a few years ago in a radio interview. Quote, God doesn't care about us. I don't mean this in a bitter way. I mean it in a very matter-of-fact way. If God cared about the gazelle, why would he have created the lion? If God cared about children, why would he kill so many of them with senseless diseases, ailments, and calamities? God is indifferent to the fate of the lamb and the lion. How do I know? It's plain as day. It happens all the time. The lion shreds the lamb to pieces. And then on another day, he starves to death. I know it's hard to accept this. It means coming to terms with the idea that the cavalry is not coming, that your prayers will not be answered, and that God does not care about you. Let's stop waiting on God to come riding to the rescue. End quote. Friends, this is how many people view our world and how many people view God. They see the world as a place where violence and greed and an aggressive selfishness are rampant. And more than that, people see that these very attitudes and behaviors often seem to be rewarded. Haven't you ever felt like that? Like the very people who ought to be punished for their deeds seem to actually be successful? I mean, read the news in the realms of entertainment, sports, and politics. Wickedness often seems to pay off. And where is God in all of this? I mean, isn't he holy? Isn't he righteous? Isn't he just? Doesn't he hate sin? Why doesn't he do something about all of this? Friends, if we're honest, I think we've all thought and felt these kinds of things at some point in our lives. They're common. And given who God is, these are good and right questions. So the psalm that we're going to be studying this morning, Psalm number 10, as far as we can tell, was, was written by the great King David, the paragon of monarchy in ancient Israel. This is the one that God himself referred to as a man after my own heart. And if we know scripture, we know David's reign had many high points. But before and during his reign, he also knew great personal sin and great personal suffering. And that's why, we're, that's why we have Psalm 10 and, and many others like it in the Psalter. Because even those who are trusting in the Lord find that in this fallen world, the wicked do often seem to benefit from their wickedness. And their righteousness often seemed to be victimized. And so like David, we too can often wonder, God, why? Why don't you stand up and act? So our text this morning, again, is Psalm number 10. So if you haven't already, if you could turn there in your Bibles, and listen now as I read it aloud. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? 
In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty, and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man, who is of the earth, may terrify no more. Amen. Well, friends, historically, we're, we're not sure exactly what set of circumstances David is referring to here. And if you read of his life, there, there are many circumstances that he might have been speaking about here. But the heart behind his lament is plain. I think we know how he feels. And that's often why the Psalms are so helpful and instructive to us, because they, they give us words to speak to God when we don't have words of our own. And they give us words to speak to ourselves, words about God to help us to remember that, that we should always have hope because our lives are lived entirely under the good and the righteous and loving rule of our great God and his anointed king, the Lord Jesus. So brothers and sisters in Christ, today we want to watch as David works through his doubt about God. We want to see how David then responds to these doubts. And then how it is that he comes out the other side praising God because he now sees him rightly. And any friends here this morning who know themselves not to be Christians, as we're going through Psalm 10 this morning, I want you to notice that God is attentive. I want you to notice that he cares about how the creatures live in this world that he's made, those made in his image. And I want you to notice that in the end, he will bring justice against those who live for themselves at the expense of others. So our central point this morning, I think it's fairly clear in the text. Our central point is this. It's, it's that God cares for the downtrodden. 
and he will protect them by destroying the wicked. God cares for the downtrodden, and he will protect them by destroying the wicked. To help us to apply that central truth about God, I want us to consider two ways we can put that truth into practice in our lives. And these are both things today that we need to understand in our hearts and our minds, things we need to understand. So our first point this morning, the first thing we we want to understand is this. So point one, understand who the wicked man is. Understand who the wicked man is. So David begins in verse one with a question. Take a look with me at verse 1. This is a question that's going to be the foundation of everything he says in the rest of the psalm. Verse 1, he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's saying, God, things are going badly here. There's real trouble. Bad people are doing bad things. Where are you? That's his question. And if we quickly then skim verses 2 through 11... You sort of let your eyes wander over those verses. We can see specifically what the psalmist is troubled by. He's troubled by the wickedness of the evil people he's surrounded by and how they seem to get away with it. So if we take verses 2 through 11 together, I think we see the general picture is of people who are prideful and prideful in every part of their being. So if we look in verse 2, you see the wicked man, he's described as arrogant. In verse 4, he acts in pride. In verse 5, he's called haughty. And then David gets even more specific. So this, this wicked pride starts with his thoughts about God. So verse 3, what does he do? He reviles the Lord. Verse 4, in his thoughts, there's no room for God. Verse 5, God's word is far from him. And look at verse 11. He tells himself that God has forgotten. He thinks he covers his face. He never sees all this wickedness. So there's a pride of, of mind, of thoughts, of attitude. You'll notice this pride also infects how he thinks about himself. You look at verse 6, he says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. And his pride poisons his thoughts towards others. This, This prideful, wicked man seems to delight in targeting those that he sees as being beneath him. So verse 2, it's it's the weak. Verse 8, it's the innocent. Verse 9, it's the helpless. So it shouldn't be any surprise that this proud boasting doesn't just stop in his thoughts. His pride then spreads to how he speaks. Look in verse 3, what's he doing? He boasts of his evil desires with his mouth. Verse 7, he breathes out curses and lies and threats to and about others. So he's speaking in pride. And then if you look at verses 
8 through 10, you can see that pride ultimately leads to evil actions, behaviors. So verses 8 through 10, you see he hunts down the weak. In verse 2, he lies in wait to ambush, waiting in secret. And then once he pounces, his victims are dragged off. They're crushed. They collapse. They fall. Friends, I have to say, as I was reading this and thinking about this description of the wicked man, I was struck really by how much it sounded like a description of Satan himself. When Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, he said Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Peter says that Satan, quote, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And the unbelieving world that we live in, this world that's been under the evil one's influence since the beginning, this is how it thinks and acts and speaks. So at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 18, you see Babylon the Great, this symbol of the entire history of unbelieving mankind. We see Babylon the Great speaking, and in Revelation 18:7, what does she say of herself? Quote, in her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. And friends, that sounds like the wicked person in Psalm 10, doesn't it? So David's confusion, his doubt here, it's not totally alien to us, is it? I mean, don't we all get there sometimes? Maybe your troubles involve people trying to harm you directly. Or maybe you're, like many of us, just looking around at the obvious brokenness of 21st century American culture. Maybe your heart's discouraged by larger global problems, any of these things. Whatever those troubles are, it can be a natural question to ask God, why? And friends, that's actually a good response. Because what are you doing with your troubles in this situation? You're doing what David did. You're turning to God. You're moving towards him. You're speaking to him, speaking to him on the basis of what's actually true about him. That, that he's good. That he's righteous. That he's just. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that you should sort of point your finger at God and, and make accusations against him as though you have the, the right to sit in judgment on him. But I am suggesting that if you're experiencing doubts about God, if you're feeling confusion about what he's doing in the world, then speak those concerns to him. Friend, if you're in Christ, if you're, if you're trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then you can know that, that the Creator King is also your loving Heavenly Father. He wants you to come to him when you're troubled. He knows that you're weak. He knows that you're prone to doubt him. Now, it's not a good thing that you doubt him, but it is the reality, isn't it? And what he desires from you in those moments is that you don't compound your struggles to trust him by trying to handle it yourself, but that instead you would come to him. 
Because it's only there that you're going to find answers. It's only there that you're going to actually find help. Christian, what did your Savior say? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I also think we want to note here, who's writing this? I mean, who's lamenting the apparent success of this wicked man? It's David. David who had multiple wives, who committed adultery with the wife of one of his loyal subjects who was off fighting a war for David, who basically had that man murdered by ordering him to be sent into the thick of the fighting on the front lines, all so he could take that man's wife for himself. This is the man who is lamenting the apparent success of the prideful, wicked man. Who does he think he is condemning this wicked man for doing the very things he himself had done? Well, friend, I think you and I agreed earlier that sometimes we feel oppressed by the wickedness of evil people, right? So I have a question then for myself and for you. Am I standing on some sort of moral high ground where I can lament the wickedness of others and kind of ignore my own? Are you? Uh, friends, in this psalm, who do you see yourself as? Do you see yourself as the afflicted, helpless, innocent victim? Or do you see in yourself the pride of this wicked man? And I want to ask that question both, of here, both uh, to those who are here today as Christians and to those who know they're not Christians. Because according to the Bible, apart from the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ, we are all bound over to sin. Friends, in, outside the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we're all that wicked man. Uh, Romans chapter 3, you might be familiar with that, that chapter. It's a famous passage. It says, quote, there is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. There is no one who does good. And friends, if you read the rest of that, that famous chapter's description of all mankind, we all look a lot like the wicked man described here in Psalm 10. You know who's the only one who has the right to ask these questions that David is asking? You know who's the only one who has the right to look at the wicked pride of other people and to judge them? Who's the only one who was truly innocent, who was truly undeserving, a victim of others' oppression? Friends, it's Jesus Christ. Only Jesus had the right to look around at other people, to look at Pilate, to look at Herod, to look at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And to say to God, God, why are you letting these wicked men succeed in their schemes against me? It's only Jesus that had the right to say to God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you think as Jesus hung on that cross 
for hours, being mocked again and again, that Jesus was tempted to think, Father, why me? I obeyed you perfectly. I don't deserve this. Why are you letting them win? Friends, when we read Psalm 10, we can be fairly confident that it was David who wrote it. But we can be absolutely certain that in these laments, we are perfectly and fully seeing the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ as he walked through this wicked world and endured the persecution of wicked men. And we can know that he endured the temptation to sinfully doubt and to accuse God. Friends, again, we know from Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we have been, yet without sin. And he endured all of that pain, all of that injustice, all of that temptation to doubt. He endured all of that for us. Friends, this is the gospel, the eternal son of God. He left heaven. He took on flesh. He became a man. He lived a perfect life of trust and obedience towards God so that he could die on the cross as a substitute for us, for us prideful and wicked people. He gave himself as the innocent, spotless Lamb of God in our place to bear the penalty for our sins if we would just acknowledge our wicked pride before God. If we would just trust that Jesus has taken God's wrath for us. And then if we would turn away from that life of sin and follow Jesus. So Christian, if you've done that, then rejoice this morning. Rejoice in the knowledge that your wickedness and pride has been forgiven forever. All of it. Every last bit of it. Jesus has paid it all. The cup of wrath is empty, friend. And that means that God is now and forever for you if you're in Christ. And my non-Christian friend, if you're listening, friend, that could be you too. There is nothing stopping you. Know yourself to be a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. Know that you are the wicked man of Psalm 10, that you have rejected God. Know that you have lived for your own selfish desires. And then trust in the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross in your place. Repent of your sinful old life. Take on the new life of loving and following Jesus Christ. Friend, do it today. You can. A word to those here today who are Christians. Brothers and sisters, now that the Lord has saved us from that life of pride and wickedness, we do have to remain vigilant not to fall back into it, don't we? We're still prone to give in to the temptations of this world and its values, aren't we? We certainly are not beyond such sinful attitudes and actions that we see here in Psalm 10. So it's good to examine our hearts. It's good to ask, are, are there any ways in my life right now, yes, as a believer, where I'm willing to step on others to get something I want? Are there ways that I'm disregarding what God says in his word and so degenerating spiritually in order to gain material prosperity? Friends, these are significant questions. And again, we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do, so 
take time to talk with your spouse or a close friend or one of the elders, someone who knows you well and who cares about you spiritually. Ask them what they see. It might be an opportunity to allow the Lord to do some painful but maybe some necessary work in your heart to, to wean you more and more off of what this wicked world values. So we've had a chance to study a portion of Psalm 10. We've been thinking about who is this wicked man. Point one, understand who the wicked man is. That's going to bring us to our second point. This is the second thing that we want to understand today from Psalm 10. And it's this. Understand who God is. Understand who God is. Take a look with me at, at verse 12. So I think in many ways, verse 12 serves kind of as the turning point in the psalmist's thinking. So remember in verse 1, he began with a question. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then in verses 2 through 11, we see him meditating on the wickedness of the wicked man. And somehow, in spite of his sin, he's still prospering. So up to that point, the psalmist's question is totally unresolved. Until we get to verse 12. Because it's in verse 12 that we see David really, for the first time since verse 1, sort of pulls his eyes off of the wicked man and he sets his eyes onto God. And it begins there with a cry for help. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. You can picture this in your mind, can't you? It's like he's been deep in gloom. He's sort of staring at the wicked man with blinders, seeing his sin, seeing his success, and it's just, he's just despairing, right? But then we get to verse 12, and it, it's almost like he shakes his head really hard and slaps himself a few times, and he says, why am I spending so much time staring at these wicked people and wondering why God isn't doing something? I, I need to set my eyes on the Lord. I need to get on my knees and ask him to do something. Uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 10, he, he said this, says, David, in order to prevent himself from being overcome by blasphemies of men, very properly turns his attention away from them. End quote. That's a good word, friends. And then really in the rest of Psalm 10, so if you take verses 13 through 18, we, we can see David helping himself to understand why he should do what he just said, pray to this God, and why he should expect this God to act. It's in the remainder of these verses we can see David reminding himself over and over again who God is and what God does. So look at verse 13 with me. Again, he says, why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? It's like now that David's starting to look to God and remember who he is, he looks back at the wicked man and he realizes this guy's crazy. He's doing all these terrible things, reviling the Lord. Does he think he's going to get away with it? That's insane. So David is rehearsing in his mind what the Lord is like. So verse 14. Yes, God does see. He does think about the wicked man's deeds. And he will act. God will come to the rescue of the weak ones that the wicked man is hunting down. Look at verse 17. God will listen. 
He will give them courage. Verse 18, God will protect those who are weak and needy and helpless. Let's look back at verse 17. These evil people, they think they're in charge, but God is king now and forever, and anyone who opposes him will be destroyed. Verse 18, these wicked men, God made them from the dust of the earth, and to dust they will return. He will judge them. They will never trouble the world ever again. Friends, how did David know all of this about God? Again, we don't know exactly when in his life David wrote this or what part of his life he was thinking of. Maybe maybe he was writing it or thinking about the time when King Saul was having his fit of jealousy towards David and wrongly seeking to do him harm. Maybe he was thinking back to his younger years. Surely David would have remembered how the Lord had used him to stop the blasphemies of Goliath, this wicked one who had terrorized God's people. Maybe he was writing this later in his life when his own son turned against him, drove him out of Jerusalem and made himself king. Friends, whichever or however many of those it was, surely David would have remembered how many times in his own life the Lord had saved him. Saved him from the hands of Saul, from Goliath, from his son. But whatever the immediate circumstances David was thinking of here, friends, David also knew the scriptures. He knew them well. He knew the history of the Exodus. He knew that God had said, quote, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Friends, David knew the scripture. He knew God's law. He remembered how after, after he'd given his people such a miraculous salvation, God had revealed himself to his people through the commands he gave them to live by. So surely David knew God's commands to Israel in Deuteronomy 10, 18. Deuteronomy 10, 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you. David knew Exodus 22, 22 to 23. God says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. Friends, the point is this. David was able to pray, to cry out to God, believing that God would actually listen and act because he had seen God's faithfulness to him personally, and more importantly, because he knew God through the scriptures. And so having come to know this God, to to, to be reminded of who God is, David was strengthened to rise up out of his despair and to trust the Lord, to truly believe that even though he had not yet acted, God surely would act, to vindicate his own name and to rescue the downtrodden. So Christian brothers and sisters, there's much here to meditate on. There's much to apply, but let me start here. Friend, when you are discouraged... Please notice I said when, not if. When you are discouraged, what's your best move? 
friend, it is always to lift up our eyes to God in heaven and to pray to him, to ask him to act on our behalf. So that leads to my next question. Friend, is it typical for you to quickly turn to the Lord, to cast your cares on him, knowing that he cares for you when you are discouraged? Is that your pattern? Or do you tend to sort of get stuck and, and, and fixated on the horizontal circumstances? Friends, if it's the latter, learn from David here. Make an intentional choice to just tear your eyes off of whatever troubling circumstances you're looking at and choose instead to cry out to the Lord in prayer. Turn away from looking at your circumstances and turn towards God. Call out to him to hear and to act. Ask him to rescue you from that. Friends, that is a choice that we can make. Maybe you say, all right, that's fine, Chris. I do pray, but honestly, it just doesn't usually seem to change anything. I think we've all been there too, right? Friends, again, David is our example here. David knew his God. David didn't have blind faith. David didn't have faith in faith. David had faith in God. He, he had faith in God who had revealed objectively true things about himself in his word. So Christian, if you feel like your prayers are sort of hitting the ceiling and, and bouncing back unanswered, this isn't an easy question for me to ask, but I need to ask it. Could it be that you don't know God as well as you might? Or could it be that you have forgotten who he really is? Christian, that can happen. It does happen. So spend more time in the scriptures. In our Bible study last Wednesday night, we were thinking about the idea of repetition in the scriptures and how sometimes it seems like we're saying the same things over and over again. That's because we are. That's because those are the things we need to remember. So Christian, spend time in the scriptures. Fill up on who God is. Fill up on all that he's done, on all that he's promised to do. It's not for nothing that more than once in his word, God says that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from his mouth. So friends, read the word on your own, consistently, daily. You can't expect to run a race very well if you don't eat. And give yourself time to think about what you've read. Friends, it's okay to just read for two or three minutes in the morning. You know, it's okay to sort of snack on God's word. But friends, aim for more. Taking in a full meal is better. I don't know, maybe write a little bit about what you just read, just to sort of help you process what you've just read so that you can remember, that you can believe it more. And also, friends, do everything that you can to sit under the preaching and the teaching of the word, too. So, friends, be at church. 
even when you're not feeling like it, especially when you're not feeling like it, it's not going to get better if you just kind of stay home. Friends, we have Wednesday Bible study almost every week where the word is being taught, where it's being applied. And right now, you don't even have to leave the house to be part of that. Consider attending one of the church's small group studies. And if you do, like actually committing to being there regularly. Brothers and sisters, your own personal Bible study is critical for your relationship with the Lord. Do that. But so is your being fed by the word preached and taught by the men that God has gifted to his church to help you understand and to apply the word in ways that you may never have thought of. While listening to famous preachers online certainly can bless us, I want to be clear, I'm talking here about the pastors of your church, the men that you have entered into a covenant with, who will answer to God for your souls in a way that John Piper and John MacArthur never will. So Christian, get to know your God better and better. Make feeding on his word a more consistent and a more meaningful part of your life. And then spend time in prayer. Friends, let that time in the word fuel your prayer life. Because the better you know this God, the easier it's going to be to believe that he can and he will answer your prayers. Friends, we know sometimes God doesn't answer prayer right away. Sometimes he doesn't answer prayer in the way we want. And I can't pretend to know what God's specific plans are for your life or how and when he intends to answer each of your specific prayers. But I do know Proverbs 15.29 says, He hears the prayer of the righteous. And I do know that in Romans 8, Paul asks some pretty good questions pretty sharp guy. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Friends, that's what they call a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Those are good questions. Brothers and sisters, God has given his beloved son for you. He has demonstrated his love for you once and for all at the cross. So remind yourself of God's infinite love in the gospel often, especially when you're doubting him. And then pray. And keep on praying even when you can't see his answers. Because, friend, he loves you. He will answer. He will rise up to lift you out of your troubles, either sooner or later. He will do it. Christian, I also want to say this. We've acknowledged that before we knew Christ, we were that wicked man, right? But now, having been saved through Christ, we as a church, we really do face the opposition of wicked men, don't we? I want to skip over that. I don't need to go down a laundry list of how 21st century America is increasingly willing to slander Jesus himself, to attack Orthodox Christian doctrines that are 2,000 years old, and to seek to limit Christians' freedom to worship, to speak the gospel. Friends, we know those things are happening. God's word says again and again that until Jesus comes back, it's going to go on happening. It's going to get worse. 
So how should we live as we encounter the opposition of wicked men? I think first, we should get humble by remembering our own sin. To get humble by remembering our own sin. Friends, it's only by the grace of God that we're not right there with those who are opposing us, right? So we should take on the attitude of our Savior who when he was in the midst of suffering the most unjust act the world will ever know, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And we should also remember the words of Paul in Ephesians 6. What does he say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when we encounter opposition, first remember our own sin. And then in all humility before God, we want to pray as David prays here. We should pray that God would rise up and stop those who would seek to hinder or to harm his church so that the gospel can spread freely for his glory. That's a perfectly good and right prayer. Are we sometimes uncomfortable praying that God would do that? I think we can be sometimes. Friends, again, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, we see the spirits of those who have been martyred for the name of Jesus, killed, for naming the name of Christ. And they ask God, quote, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And friends, God does not scold them for asking that question. He just tells them to wait a little bit longer. Christian, yes, we should humbly remember our own sin at all times. We should pray for our enemies that the Lord would convert them. And we should look forward to the time when the Lord judges the wicked who refuse to end their rebellion against him and who slander him and who seek to destroy his people. Both of those things. Friends, we should step back now. Let's look at the big picture of Psalm 10. Because I think there's a, there's a chain of events here. And I assume the Lord wants us to see it and to learn from it, given that he inspired it. So David began by expressing doubt towards God. And that doubt led to a cry for help. And that cry for help then triggered his remembering and rehearsing who God is. And remembering who God is brought confidence in the Lord. And that confidence ends with David anticipating what God is going to do. Friends, do you see that chain there? That's, that's where we should live as followers of Jesus Christ. So when we're struggling with troubles, when we're struggling with lack of trust in God, we want to go to him. We want to pray to him. Yes, we want to spend time in his word, remembering who he is, what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And let that time that you spend dwelling on him, dwelling on his goodness to you in the gospel, let that restore a trust, a confident trust in him. 
and in anticipation for what he's going to do for you in the future. Friends, the Lord Jesus is going to return. He is going to rescue and save those who have humbled themselves before him. And he is going to bring justice and peace to his creation forever. He is going to do all of these things. Amen. Friends, let's pray together. Well, Lord, we confess to you that we are often where David begins this psalm. Lord, we do often doubt you. We do often have these questions, Lord, which seem unanswered. We confess to you, Lord, that we're not trusting you and trying to figure things out on our own. So, Lord, cause us to remember day by day the simple means of grace you've given to us in your word and in prayer. Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would impress your word on us, that we would believe it. Lord, we do believe. We pray you'd help our unbelief. Lord God, we cry out, Lord, rise up. Help, rescue, deliver. We pray that for the lost around us, that you would save them. We pray that for your church, that you would protect them, protect their witness to the gospel. God, we pray that you would do all of these things this morning because we want to see you glorified more and more. So we lift these prayers up to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.